In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. They include Hall of Fame athletes, Academy Award winners, Golden Globe winners, Super Bowl champions, Emmy winners, award-winning authors, award-winning film score composers, directors, trailblazers, pioneers, and venters, the variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. Should we take a look at them then? Right. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes, but with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. What are they? We're standing in someone's graveyard, I reckon. Viking? Well, maybe older. Mr. Brown is an archaeologist. Well, I'm an excavator. You've come to dig up the mounds. So you think there's something beneath? Who are those men? They're from the museum. Ye gods! Mrs. Pretty, I think you'd better come and see. Why would anyone want to bury a ship? I'd expect this is a grave of a, a warrior or a king. But there's more. There's much more. War's looming. All hands are on deck to excavate before hostilities begin. The dark ages are no longer dark. Everyone's going to want a piece, and this is your fun. Why else will you be playing around in the dirt while the rest of the country prepares for war? That means something, doesn't it? From the first human handprint on a cave wall, we're part of something continuous. Life is very fleeting. I've learned that. Would you have dinner with me? Yes. It has moments you should seize. to dig the earth his whole life through. Not find anything like I've discovered here. Spirit steady, Mr. Brown. We're coming towards the edge of the atmosphere. You say the word, and I'll dig. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. I am Derek Thomas. This is episode 221. The movie trailer you heard coming into this was for the movie The Dig. My next guest, Stefan Gregory, was the composer for that movie. Did a phenomenal job, and we're going to get into that in a moment. The Dig was easily, has been easily, one of my favorite movies of the year for a plethora of reasons, which I will go into. I did want to uh, go into a few things before I go into the heart of the interview. Uh, first of which is my handle on Twitter is MDM Critic. Uh, on Instagram, it's Monday Morning Critic Podcast. On Facebook, it's Monday Morning Critic Podcast. My website is mmcpodcast.com. Please feel free to drop me an email at mondaymorningcritic at gmail.com. Many different ways to listen to the podcast. If you know, I'm sure you clearly figured that out already. Um, Audible, Apple Podcasts, and if you do listen to it through Apple Podcasts, I would certainly appreciate a review. Uh, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Spotify, it's all over the place. Uh, Google Podcasts, which I absolutely love. I think it's easy. It has a very friendly interface. I love Google Podcasts. Um, I like them all. They all work great. Um, So thank you for listening either way. I really appreciate it. So one of the things I love, not only about Stephen Gregory or my other guests, is that when you have a podcast in the film and TV category, I think it's important, at least for my podcast, that I bring in the entire experience of movie making people that are involved in it, right? So if you look at my guest list, it's very eclectic. It's very diverse. Um, You have cinematographers, writers, directors, actors, uh, composers, uh, authors. It's the entire gambit of people in the movie-making world, right? And I think as a podcast, I owe that, right? So one of my influences early on that I loved was David Letterman. I still love Dave Letterman. Um, and Dave Letterman, one day you'd watch and he'd have Don Rickles on. 
the next day you'd watch and he'd have Jack Hanna the, the, and he'd bring out like 20, not 20, but like five animals, right? These, and Dave's reaction was priceless. Then Dave would have stupid pet tricks where he'd bring in people from around the world whose pets could do these unbelievably funny things. Then he'd have Howard Stern. Then he'd have Bill Clinton. Like it was so diverse and it was so eclectic. You never knew what he was going to get. And I feel like my podcast is that way in the sense that every guest I get brings you a piece of the movie making puzzle. You know, I'm not a podcast and I've seen these. You look at their last 20 guests and 80% are from one show. I don't know how you can be in the TV and film category, claim to have a podcast, claim to love movies, claim to be a movie buff, and you have no range of guests. That, it's just confusing to me. And that's the one thing I'm proud of. I'm not comparing myself to Dave Letterman either. But I, I think that's the one thing I love about Dave was his diversity in guests, his, you know, and his the way he managed to bring and infuse all these wonderful personalities. And the other thing that I really love doing is bringing to light some of these guests that may have escaped you. Many of you are movie lovers. I'm sure all of you are in some way, shape, or form. And many of these people may have flown under your radar. And to bring a little bit light on their personalities, their careers, that makes me extremely happy. And if I can do some good that way, if you find that entertaining in any way, then I've succeeded. So I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, Before I get into Stephen Gregory, this wonderful composer who did the music for Dig, uh, just a few things. Uh, I saw Nomadland. I'm going to break this down even further down the road. Um, I got to say, I was really caught off guard by how good this is. I have a lot of thoughts on this. This is maybe the most complicated movie review I've ever done. And I don't want to say why now, but long story short, I like this movie a lot for a lot of different variables. It wasn't just, this is why I loved it and it's fantastic. It's a very complicated movie in my eyes. So Nomadland, I will definitely go into uh, in the immediate future, just not now because I, I, I've been keeping my, I'm trying to keep my intros a little bit shorter because I've been going over it a little bit. But I got to tell you, um, whether we're talking about Dig, the phenomenal movie on Netflix about historians and archaeology, or we're talking about Nomadland, two very different movies. I look at these two actors, Ralph Fiennes in The Dig and um, Francis McDermott in Nomadland. I got to say, I don't care what act, if you're an actor, what acting school you've gone to, or if somebody's an actor, what acting school they've gone to, where they graduated, what an acting coach might have told them they have or they haven't. I'm sorry. There's just certain actors that are born with it. They are born. I watched, you know, uh, The Dig, and um, Ralph Fiennes plays an archaeologist, and he's eventually replaced with um, archaeologists from a museum, you know, know, basically from the British government. I don't want to give out too much, but Ralph Fiennes is is a bit of a contractor. He's for hire. He excavates things. He looks at, he's an archaeologist, but he's not big time enough to, you know, be employed by a museum. He's kind of in that mid range. Um, And and, and I'm being purposely vague because I don't want to ruin the movie for you. But there's a, you know, there's something about Ralph Fiennes you know, his look at his range of what he's played, right? You go from Red Dragon to Harry Potter to, you know, Basil Brown in The Dig, along with Stephen Gregory's amazing music. And I say this in the interview, the look on Ralph Fiennes' face, the acting, it's like he's channeled somebody else. And you're like, well, duh, that's what actors do. No, that's what actors try to do. The look on his face struck me as a man who's actually lived this, right? Living in the dirt, putting your hands in the dirt, spending hours and hours and hours of your life excavating and looking at history and things that have been buried for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That to me is unbelievable. So many actors would have played that part and it would have been, eh, that was okay. But there's something special about Ralph Fiennes that makes you think he lived that life. And the same with Frances McDermott in Nomadland. There's something about her that makes you think she's lived that life. And you could say, well, duh, they're great actors. Yes, I get that. That's not the point. The point is they have a level of ability that is unmatched. And they're not alone. There's others in that. I would say if I had to count, there's probably 50 of them. 50 actors that are so far above everybody else that they're just almost in a stratosphere all their own. 
You could put Tom Hanks there. You could put Daniel Day-Lewis in there. You could put Nicole Kidman in there. And, and by the way, Nicole Kidman is a top five actor. Let, let's just set that straight right away. Um, she is so underappreciated, but he, that's a, I guess that's a, also a podcast for another time. But it's just their performances. It was, on, it was as if, and, and I'll stick with Dig here, that... You know, Ralph Fiennes lived Basil Brown's life, and there was a there was that Ralph Fiennes was Basil Brown. It's acting like I've never seen. And then you throw in my next guest music, and it's just it's perfect movie making. It's just it's it's beautiful, is what it is. Um, really quick here, The Walking Dead came out. I just purchased The Walking Dead premiere. I get to see episodes a week early. I loved the first episode, season ten, uh, episode seventeen. Really well done. Uh, talk more upon, uh, more about that coming up. And I really wanted to say thank you to those of you that are part of the movie-making process, whether you've been on my show or scheduled to come on now in the spring and the summer. Thank you for all the hard work you're doing. Thank you for leaving your families and putting yourselves in a situation that's definitely not comfortable during a pandemic, you know, and then going back to your families. Thank you for everything you've done. Um, I think as a nation... We've been huddled around our televisions more than ever the last year. And I'm just really appreciative of, you know, I'm appreciative that movies have changed my life since I was five um, and television as well. And I'm more appreciative than ever that I'm 47 and that I get to still watch the level of television that I'm seeing during a pandemic. Like, thank you for that. I'm so appreciative of that. I, I never take it for granted. And I want you to know you're appreciated, not because you're famous, but because of the quality of the work you're putting out. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. The movie The Dig is easily one of my favorites of the year. And before I send you off to the interview with composer Stephen Gregory, who composed the music for The Dig, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk a little about history, right? You know, when we're in school as kids, a lot of us don't come away loving history. It could be the teacher. It could be the content. It could be that later in life you realize how vital history is, whether you're talking about your own family's timeline, your your own family tree, or the timeline of the world or the United States, historically speaking. So it's you. It's hard to see those as 11, 12, 13-year-old kids, right? It's something that makes more sense the older you get. Whereas when you're in school, math you use right away. It becomes much more practical, Reading and writing are much more practical. You use them right away. Um, you know, even uh, PE class, you're active, you're running. Art for those kids that have abilities in music. So you're using a lot of all these other subjects right off the bat. It takes a while to understand why history is so vital and why history is so important. There's a scene, there's many scenes that, that touch me in the dig, but there's one scene in particular in the dig where Stefan's music is playing in the background. And Basil Brown is having a con- archaeologist, Basil Brown, who I mentioned earlier, who's this archaeologist, who's having this conversation with his wife after the British Museum slash government has taken over his job excavating these huge ships from, from the land. And he's a little bit defeated. He's a little bit defeated. And his wife reminds him of not only the importance of his work, but the importance of his work to his generation and generations moving forward. I just wanted to play that clip really quick for two reasons. One, the historical aspect of it, and two, the music by Stefan that accompanies it. It's just absolutely beautiful. I found that ship. I may not be a fellow at Cambridge, but I worked out what was down there. Jacobs and Spooner too, and nobody will remember that. You don't know that. And if you're not around to see it to the end, there's even less chance. You always told me you're working about the past or even the present. That's for the future. So that the next generations can know where they came from. The line that joins them to their forebears. Isn't that what you always say? There's something like that. Why else would a lot of you be playing around in the dirt? Absolutely stunning acting from Monica Doland and Ralph Fiennes. Uh, that is top shelf. Um, you know, they play husband and wife in The Dig. And in that scene, when you watch it or if you have seen it, she reassures him 
how important his work is, not just you know in times of doubt because he's doubting his work, but how important it is now and how important it is moving forward for generations. And to me, that's everything. And that's why history is so difficult to teach to kids, right? Because as kids grow, it's hard to see a life's worth of perspective at 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. I think we appreciate history the longer we've lived it. When we look back, we understand, oh, my own personal history or the history of the world or the history of the states, whatever. We start to see its big perspective. It's big um, why it's so important. You know, and that's what this movie is. It's from start to, to, to finish, you realize it. this movie's importance. The same way we realize history's importance as we grow. We might not see it right away or when we're in high school or middle school. We have so many other things going on. We haven't lived life yet. The more you live life, the more you realize how important it is to remember those who have come before us, those monumental events and I don't want to preach to you, but it's just it's just a wonderful movie that got me really thinking. Um, lastly, um, I have a friend who's an, who's a podcast host for another podcast who asked me about a documentary to recommend to him. And one of my all-time favorite historical figures, maybe the favorite, is Ulysses S. Grant. And there was a documentary that came in, I want to say May of 2020, about Ulysses S. Grant on History Channel. I think it's available on Hulu now. But it really highlights the importance of Ulysses S. Grant. And I liked him before this, by the way. I didn't just see the documentary and like, wow, he's a wonderful person. Um, Ulysses S. Grant, if you said, said this to many people who majored in history or who know about history, you'd be like, oh, yeah, he's considered one of the top ten worst presidents ever. Um, alcoholic, scandals, criminal behavior. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a minuscule view on a huge life lived. It's a huge life. There's, there's so much more to this man, right? Those same people will never tell you how he held the union together, how he won the, he pretty much won the civil war. If you ask most historians, um, he fought to protect slaves. He advocated for the humane treatment of native Americans. He worked hard to change government. He's one of the leading figures in American history. And anybody that disputes that simply just does not know their history. They just do not. It's easy to paint somebody with a brush, but not just historical figures, but people in general. There's always a much bigger picture than what we see. And yeah, if you're looking for a documentary, I can't recommend that enough. Um, I just find him polarizing as a historical figure. Um, boy, would I love to see a movie with Ulysses S. Grant. I would like to see um, Leonardo DiCaprio portray Ulysses S. Grant. I think now we're talking about something really special. Um, that is it. I am sorry for going on and on and on, but there was, I had to set this interview up for a variety of reasons. Uh, but without further ado, please welcome composer Stefan Gregory. This is episode 221. You are listening to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Stefan Gregory is an absolutely wonderful composer, and you can find his current work, Dig, I'm playing on Netflix, starring Carrie Mulligan, Ralph Fiennes, and Lily James. Stefan, thank you so much for being on the show today. I am so happy to have you here today. No worries, Derek. I'm, I'm very excited. So how does a, you know, I've watched many movies, many shows. How does a composer whose work has blown me away, as yours did in Dig, uh, have a degree in mathematics uh, well, I mean, it came about because that, that was where I started, really. I mean, I've just always had a passion for mathematics, and um, I mean, that's what I, I did my degree in that, and I got into music, um, professional music after that. Um, I mean, I'd always been um, a musician and a composer in my life, but, um, uh, I, you know, I just had a genuine love of it, and uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I did my, did my degree in maths and, and works as sort of a... Um, in that world for a little while and as a computer programmer. And, um, and I mean, to me, there's a really obvious connection between those two worlds. Um, I, I think there's, there's some statistic about uh, outside of the music department of, of universities, sort of the, the department with the, the biggest number of, of musicians is the math department. <laughs> um, uh, and, and there's something about the way my, my brain works, I guess. I, I think abstractly and I, I remember things abstractly. I'm really bad at remembering proper nouns and names, but I, I remember abstract ideas and I remember music. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's just about, I guess, the way you sort of have to um, 
uh, solve problems in music is, is similar to the way that you solve problems in maths, and um, um, I find them both very beautiful worlds. So. No, well said. And ironically, you know, uh, very similar to your parents' path in, in some degree, where they're science teachers who are who are folk musicians. I mean, that's kind of similar to your path in, in some degree, right? The math science background, the music background. There, there's comparisons there. There's there's a parallel there, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, they were, they were both um, like a lot of scientists. They were sort of you know, I guess sort of amateur artists as well. They have a great interest in um, in the arts and. Uh, um, I think probably expected me to, to become a scientist or something like that. Not that they, they minded. I mean, they're really excited for my, my career, but, um, but, uh, yeah, my dad was, was really the musician and my mum was, uh, really interested and got me interested in poetry and writing. Um, and so it, it was sort of natural that when I really started working as, as a composer properly, I guess, was when I started working in theatre and, um, and it sort of combines those two worlds of, of, of text and and music. Um, uh, although, yeah, I mean, I did some other stuff before that, in, in, in jazz and, and rock and roll. But um, I feel like the, um, the the theater world is where I really took hold and, and found myself. Yeah, we're going to definitely mention the, the band and, and, and so forth. Um you know, we talked off air, and I mentioned this in a podcast before this, that, you know, the coincidence that I'm interviewing two wonderful talents from Sydney, Australia, back-to-back is very ironic. What else is ironic is the lead character uh, in Dig is Basil, also the name of your pet wallaby as you were growing up. Another, yeah. <laughs> another like... <laughs> I'd forgotten that connection, but that is true, actually. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I really want to know about your life growing up, right? Because I'm always fascinated with the early part of my guest's lives. Um, um, and, and I got this from your website, which is very cool, by the way. Love it. Um, grew up no electricity. Uh, you know, kind of a... I'm guessing it was... It was um, a very kind of, um, I don't want to say humbling, it's probably the wrong expression, but do you find growing up the way you did, how much of that shaped you today, right? The, the no electricity, the, you know, growing up with parents who are very much into the arts, um, as you obviously are and were, um, do, do you feel like your upbringing played a big part of who you are today? Do you feel that, um, if something had got different, you would have been a completely different person? Do you feel like it all added up in the end? Yeah, I do think that because, um, I, mean, I think where you grow up and, and the circumstances of your life actually have a big part in, in, in who you become. Um, um, I'm a bit of a skeptic of, of talent sometimes. I, I think that um, I think that luck has has a lot to do with it, and um, I mean partly to do with it, you know. And and uh, so I think the circumstances of your of your life really do affect who you are and what you end up doing. Um, it's funny you talk about about that because uh, actually when I was Doing this film, um, uh, you know, the, the dig. I, right at the end of it, I was actually in the, living in London in the UK, and um, my partner became pregnant, and, and, the, and the pandemic was sort of approaching. And we made the decision to go back to Sydney. We hadn't been there for about a year um, because that's that's where we are. You know, we're, we're Australian nationals, and where we get healthcare, etc. And and, and um, it just felt like we weren't going to get a flight back if we didn't go right then. And so because we had to leave so quickly, we had nowhere to live back in Sydney. Um, someone was renting our house. And we ended up going back to the property that we're talking about here, the place that I grew up, which is this remote um, um, land just, just on the outskirts of Sydney, which now does have electricity, by the way, but mm-hmm. it didn't for, for 15 years. Um, and so I was able to sort of re um, explore my relationship with this part of my past and, and um, which I have very mixed uh, emotions about because um, it's a place I'm very connected to. It's a very beautiful um, landscape there and world. And I, and I you know, I know the, the trees and the, and the animals there. I know their names and I, I know that world very, very well. It's kind of a, it's sort of a spiritual connection to that place. Uh, but it was also, you know, in some ways a difficult um, uh place to, to grow up and and um, uh, not so much because we didn't have electricity I mean we had this sort of solar system and you can make do without without those things but um, uh, you know, I, I felt like a very much an outsider in that in that world it, it was it's a very um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small um, slightly conservative part of, of Sydney and and my parents were 
um, hippie biologists with, with with sort of slightly more progressive views than a lot of the people around, and um, and um, so I felt like a bit of an outsider growing up there. Um, and I know that uh, theater, the, the theater world, is a place that brings a lot of people who, who feel like outsiders um, and don't belong anywhere. And, and so um, sometimes I think that's the reason I ended up in that particular world. Um, uh, Stefan, does it take you a long time to overcome that feeling of being an outsider? Because I get that. Like, that's a very difficult thing, right? Um, granted, your parents are, 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 you know, they're just good. They sound like very good people, solid human beings, but that doesn't affect the way that how you feel and you feel as an outsider. Does that, is that something that takes a long time to overcome for you? I know you talk about the theater that that's where it kind of ends up, but along the way, was that a difficult road for you to travel? Yeah, it, it was. But I mean, I, I mean, I think it's a common thing that a lot of people feel um, uh, and you sort of get used to it. Uh, I think it's helpful. What's been helpful for me is transitioning between many different um, professions or, or worlds in my life. You know, I've I've gone from um, university to sort of working in, in a in a computer programming biotech firm in Silicon Valley to being in a, a jazz musician and working in the sort of jazz culture of, of Sydney, then working as a, a rock um, musician, a kind of pop star, if you, if you will, a B grade one. But, but um, you know, these are all really, really different worlds. And, and whenever you get into them for the first time, um, there's a slight learning curve because you just got to understand the culture and, and what's okay to say and, and how people want you to be. And, um, uh, and so you, you sort of get, get used to, to faking it a bit. Um, and, and just, and just being okay with, with not, um, knowing all the rules initially. And, and I mean, being an outsider can be an advantage as well. You know, um, it can give you a different perspective and sometimes people, people like that. They want something fresh or a different perspective on something. So there are advantages as well. Yeah. But I'm not sure how to get over it. You just find a way to, to manage it and, and use it to your best advantage. Yeah, that's well said, you know, and especially in the States, you know, I just, just looking at things generally, right. When people don't understand something, they tend to become uncomfortable. If somebody isn't like the next person, then something's wrong. Like it's just this, this, this idea of understanding people and, and being tolerant of people. Um, I hope we've come a long way since, you know, not, not just, you know, not necessarily just in Australia, but a, a, as a, as a species that we've come a long way in just being tolerant of each other, regardless of what our parents believe, what our, what our, um, life looked like as, as children growing up. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I there's a lot to be said for what, what you did and, you know, and, and, and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm very optimistic that we have come a long way as a species. I, I know that some people are pessimistic that, you know, history repeats and I think it does, you know, it, it gets bad and worse, but I think on the whole, we're on an upward trajectory and, uh, you know, I like what I've read about what I think it's, um, Steven Pinker, the, the writer has said about, about, um, humans in history, you know, he sort of makes these observations about the evidence for, for violence in, in, um, in, in our culture and, and, you know, we're living in a much less violent world, for instance, now than we're used to. I mean, of course, there's a lot of violence and bad stuff that still happens, but if you, if you want to measure it, um, it seems like there was a lot more proportion to, to the population uh, hundreds of years ago. And so, you know, that, that gives us sort of cause for hope that, that although the things do seem to fluctuate um, politically, uh, you know, to, to, to good and bad, um, depending on your perspective, but that, that on the whole, hopefully we are learning from our mistakes and, and, and getting somewhere better. I, I like to be an optimistic about that. Yeah, beautifully said, beautifully said. And, and let me ask you, so just so I understand, when you when you and your wife and your family came back from the UK, you came to the exact place you grew up as a child, right? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah, yeah that's, so, that's right. So your website describes where you lived as a steel agricultural shed. How many square feet is yeah. this? Which I'm trying to build a mental image in my mind. Like, is this a, you know, when I think shed, I think smaller, which is fine because a home yeah, is a home. It was a small, it was, um, I don't think in feet, sorry, I think in meters. Um, but uh, it's probably like 12 by, oh, 12 by 5 meters, I want to say. Like, it's a small, it's, um, uh, you know, um, Maybe maybe forty foot long. Maybe. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. Um, and um, does that sound right? Um, but uh, I don't remember. You know, because it was a while ago. I mean, I visited 
the shed again. But when I went back there, there's sort of a new house there now next to it, which is a bit larger and a bit more um, has a, few, a bit more, more infrastructure. Um, but the the shed, which I was there until I was 14, I think, and we and and we built this house, which I helped build when I was a kid because I was desperate to have a a, cast, a house as a teenager um, and live a normal life. But um, uh, uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, it was funny to go back there. It was interesting. Um, um, uh, so it was sort of a spiritual experience in a way in this really strange time that we've all just gone through to to be brought unexpectedly back to this this place that that I grew up and, um, and and working on this project that was sort of so important to me and was also about a connection to the land and, and the past. Um, uh, sorry, I'm bringing this into talking about the film, but it's sort of a bit of my. No, mind. I, I love what, I love everything you're saying right now. I, I just I connect with it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, so it was just it felt like a, a fortuitous uh, thing in a way, and um, it was uh, a quite a challenging time to be to be back there. Um, uh, we we initially you know had to get the hot water service working when we were back there, and my and my partner had terrible morning sickness, and um, and you know and then just trying to trying to finish the the composition for this film. Um, uh, remotely, you know, the, the, at that point, the director was trapped in Vienna, and, and most of the other team were, were in London, and uh, and so I would, um, I was, I was still writing parts of the film, and, and I, would, I would write them and, um, and and upload ideas, little quick time ideas to, to the director, um, but I didn't realize until we got to this property that there was no phone reception there, you know, um, and was having we having trouble getting the internet connected because everyone was in lockdown because of the virus. So I had to drive up this, this dirt track and then a four wheel drive and use my mobile phone, um, over 4g to sort of upload, uh, these ideas wow. uh, over the internet to, to, to the director in Vienna. And, and that would sometimes take a long time depending on the weather. And, um, uh, you know, eventually the, I got the infrastructure sorted out a little bit better. And, um, I found a, a place, a studio, a place I could use with, with really good internet. But, um, for a while there, it was a, it was a struggle and it, 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 um, it felt like quite a, quite a journey. Um, yeah, yeah, great, great job of adapting. And my last question about your, you know, your childhood and, and I was just taken back by this, but like, it, it sounds frightening. Um, for those listening, there was a, I got this from your website as well. There was a red back spider bite when you were nine that, that almost took your life. I mean, that's quite frightening, I would think. Yeah, it was. I mean, at the time it wasn't as frightening because I, I didn't understand perhaps the degree of danger I was in or really what was happening. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, people love to hear stories about the dangerous animals in Australia. Well, you know, yeah, I've, I've got one. I was, I was bitten by a redback spider, which, um, it, it's, yeah, it has a very toxic venom. Um, and, um, what actually happened is I, is I woke up, um, in the, in the shed that we were living in and, um, uh, I had this terrible pain in my legs. We went to the doctor, and the doctor had sort of thought that I was faking it to get to get out of school, um, <laughs> which was a pretty bad misdiagnosis. And my my mum, who was a, you know, as you said, a biology teacher, she happened to have a, a microscope at home, as you do as you're an eccentric biology teacher. And so she looked at my leg, which had these funny marks on it under her microscope, and thought that they might have been bite marks. And so she rang up the children's hospital, and they and they said, yes, that sounds likely. You should get into hospital as soon as you possibly can. And I only found out recently that apparently I um, I passed out in the car on the way to the hospital. I don't remember this. And um, and when I got to hospital, my heart rate dropped to about 20 BPM. So wow. Um, and the other the third piece of information is that they now say that the, the anti venom which was given to me, they say that uh, it's quite likely that the anti venom actually doesn't do anything. They think it might be useless. Um, so you just got to if you're lucky, you pull through, and if you're unlucky, you don't. But you know, in reality, I think few people actually die from these bites. But um, but so the, if I was quite young, and it was it was it was pretty serious. Yeah, I don't. It was three days. I was just completely out. I don't remember. Yeah, thank goodness for your mother. Um, you know, going the extra mile. Um, let me ask you. So uh, there was an interview you did. Um, this had to be. I, I want to say a few years back. Uh, and I thought it was just very sweet because I have a, a, a six month old, and I think your child's a little bit older now. But at the time. I believe your daughter was eight months old and right. you would have to drive in a loop. <laughs> You'd have to drive and put Roy Orbison, who my dad passed a year ago or two, uh, I think it's a year and a half ago now. Um, yeah. He loved Roy Orbison, which I thought was just so sweet. You would have to, you drove around with Roy Orbison playing and that's the only music that 
that she would yeah. fall asleep to. I thought that was really yeah, sweet. To, that's fine. Oh, I don't know where I don't know where that where you got that from, but that's absolutely true. And um, uh, in fact, we haven't used Roy Orbison in a while now. But yeah, for a while it was there was one track in particular, uh, uh, Pretty Woman, <laughs> which <laughs> came on that initial that snare drum. Sometimes she would be out within within seconds. It was it was very funny actually. Um, you know, a real kind of Pavlovian response. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, she loved Roy Orbison. It's great. That's so, yeah, she's about three and a half now, so it doesn't work as well, unfortunately. But yeah, that very sweet story. Um, let me ask you. So, just getting touching on your your, your rock and roll, your band roots. Um, I asked this to another composer. I'll ask you too. Um, Adam Levine was on Howard Stern, and he had said they. Howard asked him what the t- what the two best written songs in history of vocal music were. Um, Adam Levine replied, um, "God only knows" by the Beach Boys, and "In Your Eyes" by Peter Gabriel. Um, who are the influences from a um, vocal point of view, from vocal music? That well, one, what do you think of that quote? And two, who do you think, uh, as a band or as a writer of songs, that you're really moved by? Oh, so many people. I mean, I actually I find it really difficult um, uh, in general. Sort of questions about 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 favorites or, or, or pulling out single um, single artists or single songs, you know, because, um, I mean, there are ones that, that I really um, are kind of moved by, uh, and I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm perplexed as to why, why is those particular songs, because um, they're not necessarily the songs that I regard as sort of the highest, in the highest um, echelons of composition. I mean, they're always great songs, but the things that move you are just sometimes just to do with a, uh, a connection you have at a particular point in your life hmm. or something that, that you're, that you're reminded of and they have this residence. And, um, so it's, it's quite complex, you know, um, particularly when it comes to pop music about, about how that, um, about how that, um, how that generates a reaction in you, you know, because I mean, the way music functions, you know, music for film or, or, or theater or whatever, you know, has a particular function in, in that context and pop music. I mean, the, is the reason that pop, pop music exists or its function, I guess, is, is to sort of soundtrack our lives and to, to give us catharsis and, and, and to help us through our days. And so um, the way that that works with your life and the way that you listen to it means that, you know, it can really um, uh, hook into you at certain points and, and you tend to listen to certain types of music in your, in your vulnerable times. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I would really not have no idea where to start to talk about my favorite um, pop artists. Um, so so, so uh, let, let me rephrase that. Let's not, let's not use the word favorite, but like where you were in your life. <laughs> is there an artist that moved you where you were in your life? Not necessarily your favorite, but at the time of your life, that music, um, you know, vocally, was there somebody that, you know, touched you in, in, in that part of your life? Not necessarily saying they're your favorite, you know, they're the best yeah, yeah. of all time. Was there, at was which there, part of my life, sorry? At, at which part of my life? Well, I, I guess the I guess the part where at the time you were in the rock band, right? Because I oh, have I a similar yeah. yeah, I have a similar question about com- composing, but I, I guess I'll get to that in a little bit. But you know, where you were in your life at the time of the band, right? So where is there an artist that you said, you know what? Because I feel like everyone starts a band based on somebody or something that they love, right? Outside of music, like it's clearly music, but you know, maybe there's a band that really influences them at the time, not necessarily their favorite, but a band that influences them. Was there something like that out there for you? Yeah. I mean, with regard to the band, uh, Faker that I was in, I mean, I guess the obvious one to talk about there would be the cure, Robert Smith from the cure. And, mm. um, you know, and, and you talk about a, a sort of artist that gets you at a certain point of your life. And I guess I, I when I was uh, a teenager and, 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 um, I didn't listen to a lot of pop music. I was listening to all sorts of weird music, you know, like Stravinsky and stuff like that. Cause I wasn't a, a cool kid, but as a teenager, you want to be accepted. And so you start, you start trying to engage with, with, with the pop world. And, and then I discovered fantastic artists that, that, that I loved, you know, I really loved that world. And, and one of the first ones I really got into was, was, um, the cure. And it was partly because there was um, friends of mine who were really into the sort of indie music scene at, at, at high school. And, um, uh, and uh, and and because of that sort of association, this this, this the singer um, of Faker Nathan, um, we also shared this sort of passion, and, and that was one of the first, I guess, uh, musical bondings that we had. Um, uh, because you know, it's, 
I also had some pretty um, out there kind of <laughs> musical interest when I first joined that band, and I really had to be tamed a little bit, to, to be honest. You know, I was, I was a bit, um, probably a bit arrogant actually. You know, com- coming into that world thinking, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I know a lot about music, you know, and this is the pop world, and, and music's very simple here. And I, I really realized quickly that um, that that I was, that was wrong because, um, you know, you can play something or compose something very, very simple. Um, and, and it can be, it can be very difficult to play something <laughs> very simple, but with the right feeling and the right energy to, to communicate it. Um, and it can be very difficult to write something that's simple in just the right way to communicate, um, a certain emotion or something like that. And so it really opened my eyes and it really it, it beat down my arrogance a little bit, actually, that that experience. Um, yeah, and I can relate to something of, of what you said, because when I was growing up 12, 13, now in my 40s, um, yeah. you know, I, I have friends that listen to, you know, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, all these Bruce Springsteen, yeah. all these. But I was listening to like Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, Thomas. Dem- I was always yeah. a little bit di- like, but it's carried the passion has carried its way into my 40s. Like. I feel like music is what it is. Like you find what you love and stick to it. For me, nothing moved me like those movie scores, and I never let what people like thought of me. And, and I probably should have, but like I don't. I love just movie scores. To me, they just they're a soothing place in my heart. I don't know. I just maybe I'm over the top with that, uh, Stefan. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, I love that too. Obviously, I mean that's um, I, you know, I mean, I haven't done this is my first movie, right? The Dig is my first feature film, but I've been wanting to do this for a, a long time, and. Um, uh, I was very satisfied with it, with it. but yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I love movie scores, and, but I love ACDC and Guns N' Roses and Nirvana as well. You know, like they're, uh, you know, they're, they're I, I love that stuff. Like I think, and I think they're all brilliant artists. Absolutely. Completely agree. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, your first, you know, dig is your first major motion picture, you know, something very different about your music. I feel like I listen to a lot of composers. It's what I do. I just feel like, I don't know. There's something different about your music that's just so inspiring. Not that other, you know, people that are composers um, aren't inspiring, but there's just, for example, when I first listened to it, um, when, when your music came on, and I'll get to specifics in the movie in a moment, I said, This is Thomas Newman. I said, This is a great, I said, Look, turn to my wife. I said, This is Thomas Newman. And yeah, right. it was, so I'm paying you the ultimate compliment. And it was oh, like, My yeah. God, like, this is just, I don't know, for this to be your first you know, major project to me is stunning. It's, I, and I know you've done things before this. It's not like you came out of nowhere and all of a sudden you just scored this wonderful piece. But like for me to be your first major project to me, that's mind blowing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was very lucky to have it offered really. Um, and for people to, to take the risk, um, uh, on me, uh, in, in doing it. But, um, yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. I mean, it's funny because it, you know, you, I, I went through so many versions of this, score and uh, my initial things that I would, that I was trying for it were, were more out there, you know, they were more unconventional, I think. Um, and where I sort of came back to was a, in my mind is this was a slightly more, um, conventional uh, approach to it, which is, which is right. I mean, you've got to, you've got to, um, fit into the sort of genre of, of what you're doing. But, um, uh, it's interesting to hear people like you sort of say that, it, that it's different or, or something. Cause I, yeah, I don't really have a perspective on that, but it's really nice to hear. Yeah. Do you think that the choice of, you know, director obviously, but the actors involved and I'll get to the specifics in this in a moment, but the actors, the script, do they affect the score? So I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I heard the tail end of how you scored it because of the virus and so forth. Yeah. You know, I've had composers tell me that they're allowed to watch the series or the, or the movie that they're doing and then add, the, you know, I guess spotting would be the word to use, you know, add the music where they see fit. Um, at the beginning of this, or was it all done post uh, or, you know, during the virus, were you allowed to watch the final product and then decide, you know, where your music belonged or was it, um, you know, kind of rushed because of the virus um, I, I'm trying to get a big picture and understanding of that part of it, Stefan. In, in terms of the, the placement, like the spotting of the... The spotting the and, and how you scored yeah. it, right? Was it... I get the tail end because obviously the virus comes into play, but, you know, the, the majority of the, of the movie, was it... Were you allowed to see the final product and then add where you... The process, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, I've known the director for a long time, um, and so there's... We have a lot of mutual understanding, and he sort of briefed me on on some thoughts about it early on, and and my partner actually is a costume designer. She's working in the costume department of the film. 
um, because we sort of got we had another project on. We ended up getting waylaid and staying in London. So I I, I came to the, the shoot a little bit, um, and I kept in contact with with Simon during the shoot, and I, and I watched rushes and. Um, so I was absorbing the film as it was being created. Um, and then, you know, a, a sort of first edit was done. Um, and in terms of the, the spotting of it, um, uh, in the end, we, we sort of, it was just a mutual uh, agreement about where, where things went. I mean, for more than half of it, it, was, it seemed pretty obvious to a lot of us where there should be music. And then there were some other parts where it was a bit more ambiguous and, um, and you know, it just comes down to sort of trying things and, you know, oh, we try some music here. Oh no, that's too much. We take it out. And, um, you know, and there's also tent music that comes into play, you know, in the edits. Um, and so the first screening, I think sort of had half of my music and half some temp music. And, um, there was a feeling that there was sort of too much score in the, in the film actually. And so we pulled, it pulled a lot of it out and then we came back and put some stuff in and, um, you know, uh, it, it, so it's just a, it's just a sort of evolving uh, process, and um, uh, especially as in this case, the edit was changing quite a lot. And at one point, it changed quite radically. The edit we really moved around some parts of the story in quite a big way and um, tightened some scenes. And, and the result of that was that the film, for whatever reason, suddenly felt really different as a result of this of this shift in the edit. Um, and it felt a lot faster. And, and a lot of the tracks that we had and some of the music that I had, which had been working, all felt too slow all of a sudden. And we sort of had to had to start again in a way with it with a different different idea. But um, but sorry to, to go back to what you were asking about the, about the process. Uh, I mean, I, all during that during the the shooting when I was watching rushes, I was generating ideas. Just uh, I, I had this process where I. I write ideas just on a little um, dictaphone, which is my phone, you know, a little digital recorder. Mm. Um, I come up with an idea on the piano and I write it down. Um, I record it. And then I don't listen to that for as long as possible, that idea, um, because you want to distance yourself from the idea so that when you do come to listen to it, you can have some objectivity and you can judge it as cruelly as you can <laughs> um, uh, because it, you know you get swept up in your own in your own ideas when you're writing them, and, and you need to have some objectivity to to see if what you're doing is is right. And so I have this process where I distance myself from what I've written, and then I come back to it. But I had, I had so I had these lots of lots of material coming into the first edit. Um, but actually, we realised that the original brief that Simon and I had been talking about for the film wasn't right <laughs> at that point. Um, we talked about a lot of. Uh, um, Composers from the era, you know, from the, the cusp of the Second World War and, uh, and, and orchestral music from around then because and, and, we thought it would, you know, embody the time and embody the anxiety of the time and, 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 and set the period a little bit of the piece. But, but for whatever reason, it didn't quite, quite work. Like maybe that anxiety wasn't quite in that music yet or it just felt like the filmmaking techniques that we were using were actually more contemporary um, than, than that music or something. Um, which is funny because the film has been described as 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 um, anachronistic, but actually I think a lot of the editing and stuff is quite is quite contemporary in its in its in its form. Um, and so we, uh, yeah, we sort of left that those original ideas behind and um, really went through two quite different phases of, of what the music should be for the film. Um, um, so there was a lot of initial work done before the edit and a lot of that was discarded almost all of it so which is pretty usual i guess yeah and i have to say you know when this was done i i turned to my wife and i and i said you know this score has stuck with me like i just you know when it was over i said i'm going to reach out and i was just so blown away by your music i mean i can't even begin to describe you know how i felt i just again i can't believe this is your your, your first major project um i i did want to say the director you're speaking of for those listening uh, simon stone did a wonderful job um, with, with this, um, one of the best movies of the year for sure, uh, thus far in 2021. Uh, l- let me ask you, um, so there's three scenes in particular where I felt like your music really just fueled the scene and just brought it to a very emotional level level for me. Once the first being when, when Ralph finds was, was congratulating John Jacobs. I think it was a rivet he found in your music's in the background. Just such a beautiful compliment to that scene. The second was Basil and May talking about, 
you know, his work and what it means to the future of humanity. Again, your music just beautifully escorting that scene. And finally, the end credits, which, I mean, come on. I mean, a puddle of tears at that point for me. But yeah. those are three examples of, you know, people listening. You know, why do I love, you know, people who do composing so well, especially in your case, which is just remarkable. Those three scenes for me, uh, I'm leaving out others, obviously, but they really, just the beauty of composing is just right there in those three scenes. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to hear what, um, what moments you pick out actually. Um, uh, I mean, it was, it was a real gift to be given, uh, that film as, as my first film, really, you know, it, it, the cinematography in it is really beautiful. And I think the way that music often works, um, or, and certainly works in this film is to, is to marry with the image and become part of that world. And so to be sort of given these, these shots of the Suffolk landscape, um, you know, and this is beautiful, beautiful scenes. Uh, you know, it's, 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 that is, it was really lucky, you know, so, um, it really helps, uh, you know, and, and to be given, you know, sort of talking about the end credits being very emotional and stuff. I mean, like that, you know, that's, that's what the film builds up to, you know, um, you know, that, that's also an absolute gift to be given that, that's that moment in the film sort of where all the threads kind of tie together. And it's, um, you know, you watch, um, you watch it without music, of course, at first, and you just you just think, wow, yeah, this is obviously a moment for, for the music to do something, and and, uh, and and how lucky that I get to, to score this because this is just it's just a gift. So yeah, and, and just add quickly onto those three scenes, you know, there's just something about Ralph Fiennes and his face in this movie that is just so authentic and genuine yeah. and real. And then when it's when you add your music into it. There's just, and, and I'm really not trying to be over the top, and it's going to sound the way, but it's just there's a beauty that I cannot put my finger on. Like your music combined with his expressions and his mannerisms, it's just it's why I love cinema, Stefan. It's why I love cinema. I, I don't know how to explain it, and I'm sorry if I'm being over the top, but it, there's just a beauty in that that makes me just love movies. I just I can't explain it. No, I mean movies are at the best when like all the elements come together, yes, you know, and they, like a whole, and and that. And that you're finding, you know, from a composer's point of view, you, you try to find something uh, that you can give to the film that isn't there, you know, um, or uh, something you, that you can enhance in the film to make it more coherent. Um, and, yeah, it, it's when all the elements come together uh, and they feel like they're mutually dependent. I mean, that, that's that's um, when you get great moments in, in cinema. Um Thank you for saying that you that you thought that that happened at points. So that's lovely. Yeah, hear. and I have a few more questions. Thank you so much for all this time. Um, the one thing I have to say is I just thought the irony of uh, Ralph Fiennes uh, t- saying the word Snape in the movie was very Harry Potter nerdish. You know, it's a it's a very big yeah. part of the Harry. <laughs> it's a place in the movie. When people see it, they'll see what I mean. But it's just I thought it was a very kind of ironic uh, thing. Um, why can't I really want to like? purchase this soundtrack whether it's um itunes or some somewhere else do you have any information how that part of it works because i love this score i, I want to you know purchase it do you have any information how that part of it works um look uh at the moment there's there's been a lot of interest from from people writing to me which is really nice and there's been uh interest from from labels in the release it's just a bit more uh complex than i thought actually it turns out doing the release um, uh, Netflix at the moment are saying that they're not going to do it, do the release. So um, unless there's uh, considerable interest, and and so um, you know, I, I, I hope I still hold out hope that, that we can make it happen. Um, but uh, a lot of uh, Netflix soundtracks don't get released, um, unfortunately. So I'm working on it. I'm working on it because for me, it would be uh, I'd, I'd really like to to get it released. So I, I have two quick questions for you, one of which is one of the stars of the movie is Lily James. Uh, she is in a movie that I absolutely love called Yesterday, which which looks at a what if uh, when it comes to, I guess, the Beatles. Have you had a chance to see that? I haven't. I mean, I've seen the trailers for it. Uh, it looks looks really good. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, as, as somebody who loves music, I think you would absolutely uh, appreciate that. Um, my last question to you is, um, what is ahead for you? What could people look forward to? I mean, what can you say? What can't you say? Um, after this, you know, Dig is very popular. Those listening will certainly want to follow you along the way and, and follow you along your journey. Um, is there anything you could tell us about what's up for you and what you can say, what you can't say? What's what's on the horizon for you, my friend? Uh, I mean, I, I'm not signed on to anything yet. I'm, I'm hoping for um, 
I'm hoping for more film work. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed this experience, and um, hopefully that that will come. I mean, there's yeah, there's nothing. I'm, there's been interest out there, but there's nothing that I'm actually working on right now. At the moment, I'm actually writing an opera for the Queensland Opera Company, um, and um, I'm doing a bit more theatre work. So you know, back in Sydney here. So that's that's what I'm on at the moment. But um, Hopefully there'll be another, another film soon. Is, is there a composer when you watch movies or television or you kind of research, is there a composer that, again, not the best, but you find that moves you? You mentioned some names early on, but a composer, is there somebody that you really admire that you've, you've, you've really learned to appreciate the, a, a, as you get older? Uh, look, so many. I mean, so many, and, and, and so many of them are just, you know, the people we all go to. But, I mean, I love Bernard Herrmann um, and, and – and um, his work. I mean, I, I, I love his work. And uh, you know, more recently, I, I really, I really was moved by um, Johnny Greenwood's score for Norwegian Wood. Mm. I think a you know contemporary composer. I, I, something about that. Uh, I think his collaborations with Pete Anson don't always work, actually, but because he pushes the boundaries of sort of what is acceptable in a score. You know, he does a lot. But I appreciate that he pushes those boundaries. And but in, in Norwegian Wood, I think he got that balance really right. And um, those, those landscape scenes are just remarkable. And and um, and 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 you know. And sorry, I mean, are, do you want me to talk about more, more like historic composers or contemporary composers? Because I mean, uh, you know, Hilda um, Goodness' daughter. I don't know how you pronounce her last name properly, but you know, who's someone I've been aware of for a while. And to hear that, you know, she suddenly had this great success with. Joker and Chernobyl, uh, you know, and I just thought they were fantastic, fantastic scores, and it's it's so pleasing to um, to, to sort of find to hear her get that success. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, like, I want to say I want to say you're the second person that's brought up the Joker score. Honestly, I like I, I think in the last few months, which which leads me to say, you know what? Maybe I need to to reexamine this movie, the music in the movie. Oh, you not you're not such a fan of it or whatever. Did you, you, you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fantastic. Like, it, it's just a refinement of ideas. Uh, you know, it's 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 simple and 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 it does it. You know, it, it just it it. It's it, a it's a wonderful score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, right. I just feel I, I'm embarrassed that I I really didn't pay more attention to it. That's what I'm trying. To, like, I wish. Oh, yeah. 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 So I think yeah. I went into it knowing that I because I don't always. Um, uh, you know, because a, a film is an immersive experience, and so I don't, even as a composer, I'm not always aware of the score. Although it's in these days, it's kind of hard not to, not to at some point zoom out and think about it. But you know, in a, in a, in a perfect kind of experience, you you don't think about the mechanics of the the art you're watching. You know, and it's a great film that you can be so caught up in, even as a sort of practitioner of of of, of drama making, that you don't think about the mechanics of it. You know, and so, and that's a great compliment sometimes if you don't think about about that. But um, in this case, I did think about it, I think because I was aware of, of her, her part in it, and um, I did really like it. His name is Stefan Gregory. You can currently find his music in the phenomenal movie Dig on Netflix. I have to tell you, I enjoyed this conversation. You are a great human being. You're a wonderful composer. Thank you so much <laughs> for giving me your time today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Thank you. It's been, it's been really fun.